As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, it's uh, round two today as I welcome back into the studio Richard Borkham and by phone Bart Ehrman, two well-known New Testament historians. And we're going to be continuing a discussion that we began really last week on Bart Ehrman's new book, Before the Gospels, how the earliest Christians remembered, changed and invented their stories of the Saviour. Now, of course, uh, Bart is well known as a sceptical in many ways of the reliability of the New Testament. We've had him on the program many times before to debate various aspects of that. In this particular book, he says that in that period between the stories of the life of Jesus uh, being circulated and when they were written down, uh, inevitably things would have changed, evolved and so on. So we can't really trust that the Gospels do reflect an accurate picture of the historical Jesus. Well, last week with Richard Borkham, he debated that whole area and uh, we talked about things like whether we can believe the Gospels were written by the people that they're purported to have been written by, whether books like the Gospel of Mark are the eyewitness testimony of Peter and uh, various other things besides. Um, Today, we're going to be focusing more on whether we can trust the idea of eyewitness testimony in the Gospels. What do we make of recent psychological research on eyewitness testimony? Do people really remember things well? Uh, Can we trust stories that circulated for a few decades before being written down and all of that kind of thing and so we're going to get into some of these issues that are pretty fundamental to to whether the new testament is a reliable account of jesus's life sayings and so on uh, richard borkham is the author of jesus and the eyewitnesses in fact there's a revised edition coming out later in the year and who knows maybe richard will come back to tell us about that as well in due course um uh, richard and bart welcome both back to the program today 
Thank you. Thank glad, you. Glad to be here. Great to have you back. Well, let's talk, Bart, about um, this aspect of the book, which, which is a fairly uh, fundamental um, proportion of the book taken up with the, the, uh, the question of whether we can trust the whole concept of eyewitness testimony. Um, this is something I know you've done with your students sometimes, isn't it, where you've, you've asked them to remember and recall events and that kind of thing as a sort of a way of indicating how uh, fallible our memory is when it comes to to these kinds of things what sort of things do you do you do at a practical level to demonstrate this kind of issue well you know uh, scholars for a long time have been dealing with kind of practical uh, experiments with with eyewitnesses and it's uh, you know it's it's pretty easy to to test it just by asking people what they remember about things that have happened uh, the what i do in my book is i talk about uh, serious psychological experiments that have that have tried to show how well do eyewitnesses remember what it is they saw uh, and so I give case study after case study um, let, let me just give you can I give you just one example maybe of, of course of, yes uh, of this kind of thing so um, I don't know if this was as big of a deal in uh, in 1986 as it was here in the states but the uh, the uh, the space shuttle Challenger uh, exploded uh, on January 28th of 1986. I, I remember and the pictures, every, actually. Yeah, I, w- I was only six, yeah. years, six years old at the time, but even I remember that, that being televised. Okay, yes. well, mm. you know, those of us who were adults at the time remember exactly how we heard <laughs> the news. We remember where we were, how we saw it, whom we were with, what the context was, what the media was that we saw, saw it through, etc. And so uh, we have vivid memories of uh, experiences like that. So the day after the Challenger blew up, there was a psychology class at an American university, Emory University, where uh, the students were given a, uh, a questionnaire. Uh, where were you when you heard the news? How did you hear it? Whom were you with? Th- those sorts of questions. A year and a half later, uh, the uh, professors tracked down those same students and had them fill out a second questionnaire with the same questions uh, a year and a half later. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting findings was that 75% of the students swore that they had never taken a questionnaire before on this. <laughs> the, but an even more interesting finding was that uh, there were seven questions on this questionnaire. 25% of the participants answered the questions completely differently. They got the answers wrong. 25% remembered everything differently from how they had the day afterwards. Hmm. Uh, 50% of the students got only two of the seven questions right. So this this kind of experiment has been replicated time and time again, and not just about things that you've witnessed, but things that actually have happened to you, uh, where psychologists have repeatedly shown that even though we have vivid memories of the past, uh, the fact that vivid memories exist in our heads doesn't mean that those vivid memories are accurate. Uh, and so psychologists have drawn pretty clear conclusions about this, that eyewitness testimony uh, is not necessarily accurate testimony. And in fact, in many cases, it's completely wrong. Um, and so uh, this is rel- of relevance, of course, because uh, if the gospel writers did claim to be eyewitnesses, which, which they don't, but if they did claim to be eyewitnesses, would that mean that they, we, we would have some kind of guarantee of the truth of what they have to say, the historical truth of what they have to say? And psycholo- psychological research would say that the answer is absolutely not. Uh, the fact that something's based on an eyewitness doesn't make it accurate, but I want to emphasize that the gospels weren't 
written by eyewitnesses. They're written by people living 40 or 50 or 60 years later who've heard stories that have been in circulation all those decades. Uh, and so uh, I think that, you know, just on the basis of these reports, the, this kind of research, it's pretty clear that we simply can't accept that the Gospels are historically accurate, even if they are based on eyewitness reports. Okay. I mean, we we talked last week, I suppose, about the question of whether they do involve eyewitnesses, Richard, and you, you take a very different view to that on Bart. I mean, you, you could quickly restate it that, that you, you don't, as in the way Bart does, believe that these are anonymous traditions, that you believe that they are, for instance, Mark is the memoirs of Peter, uh, the apostle. And so you, you're quite happy to say that there, there is eyewitness testimony within the Gospels, even if it's not direct eyewitnesses, they're recording Yes, I mean, I think I think the eyewitness I think the eyewitness testimony lies very close behind mm. all of the gospels in slightly different ways in each gospel. Um, of course, um, even if you think there's a long process of oral tradition between the eyewitnesses and the the writers of the gospels, um, your eyewitness testimony, you know, the reliability of eyewitness testimony still matters because it's there at the beginning. So, mm. you know, mm. if the eyewitnesses got things wrong at the beginning, then there's no way you can get it right sure. later yeah, yeah. so if these things did go back to the time of jesus you know they've come through eyewitnesses at, at the original point certainly so I, I think it's a general point but of course um if you've got a long process of tradition between the eyewitnesses and the gospel writers then of course you've got much more room for all sorts of things to to go wrong in that process um but um but I, th- I think that studies of eyewitness testimony therefore are are, are very important I, I would say a couple of things initially um, much of the study of eyewitness testimony um, to which people appeal, um, there is the special category Bart's just spoken about, known as flashbulb memories, where, where people have memories of these big public events, which mm. they maybe see on television, but they also hear all about them and all kinds of things. It's a particular category which has been much studied, and I think it's been demonstrated that uh, very often people get those things wrong. The other thing that people concentrate on, for very understandable and important reasons, is eyewitness testimony in court mm. and in police procedures. Um, and it's certainly quite disturbing, I think. Um, I think psychologists have shown that we ought to be really rather cautious about eyewitness testimony in court uh, because all sorts of things can go wrong. Um, but it is, again, a special category. Um, if you think about it, very often the problem may be that people are being expected to remember something that they weren't in the least interested in observing at the time. Um, what sort of car was it? You know, the, the, mm. just, just something happened in the vicinity where they were concentrating on quite different things. And, it, 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 you know, and also people are quite persuadable um, within, for example, a, an identification parade. You know, they're told uh, that, or they, 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 they think they know that the guilty person is someone somewhere in this line. Mm. So they're inclined to go for someone who looks familiar. Oh, that must be it. You know, all kinds of ways in which uh, eyewitness testimony in court is a special category. And actually, um, what they've shown is that, that, that uh, the more reliable sort of eyewitness testimony in court, and it's very difficult to study this, of course, right. a- actually, because um, you know psychologists can't interfere in the actual proceedings of a court. Um, so most of the stuff is done in experiments in laboratories rather than in real life. But there have been some real-life cases where the, the, the case didn't come to court or something like that. And... Um, 
Cases where eyewitnesses are much more reliable is where they are people actually involved in the event in some in some way, um, emotionally affected by the event, an event that was really important to them. Mm. Um, and those are the kinds of events people do remember well. Yes. Um, events in which they were personally involved, which were important to them. Um, I'm likely to remember my wedding better than that 10th wedding I went to in that particular year, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there are, you see, what I try to do in my book, um, focusing on um, the, the kind of evidence that was important for me was eyewitness testimony um, to personally experienced events, you know. Mm. Um, I, I, I probably neglected um, memories of the sayings of Jesus, because I think that's a quite different sort of memory. That's semantic memory. It's memory for information okay. rather than memory for events that happened to you. But in the case of events that happened to you, um, you know, there's been a lot of psychological research, and they they actually do tell you um, the factors that make for a well-remembered event and the factors that enable um, uh, long-term memory. Um, and importance to the person experiencing it, uh, emotional involvement. Uh, the event is, is unusual. That also matters. You know, if you got married every day, you wouldn't mm. remember it. Mm. Your, your, your one or two weddings you remember. Uh, unusual events you remember. Um, but then also the conditions. Um, most forgetting, I think Bart says this in his book, you know, most forgetting actually occurs very quickly. Most of what we forget, we forget in the first few hours or a couple of days. Um, the memories that survive that initial period of forgetting um, are much more likely to stick. And they are likely to stick um, if we are frequently rehearsing them. Right. And what you can tell probably from your from people's own experience is... Um, very soon after you remember it, if, you, if, you, if it's an event you tell people about, very soon it acquires a sort of standard form in your memory. Mm, you always mm. tell the story like that. Yes, yes. And that, in fact, ensures that it does stay much the same. Mm. Uh, I, I can think in my in example of the way I met my wife because you inevitably end up telling that story a lot at parties and places like that I, I yeah i have a sort of a standard sort of series of events that have kind of solidified in my mind now if i went back to the day i'm sure there's all kinds of other little details that i i have completely forgotten about but but it's these sort of I, yeah i've got a kind of a timeline in my mind of of the the, the central events of of that particular evening let's say um, so, so it's that sort of idea, is it, that, that these are the kind of... Yes, and, and the, the other very important thing, I think, is that people remember the gist of an event much better than the details. They remember the narrative core, in other words. Yes. Uh, I mean, somebody said, you know, if, if, um, if someone's hit by a car, they may well forget the colour of the car the day of the week, but they don't forget that, it, that they were hit, for a car, hit by a car rather than, say, falling off a mountain. Mm, you know, mm. the, the central core of the memory is, is very persistent. The details may vary. And, and memory distortion, which does happen, of course, quite often, mm. but memory distortion tends to happen with the details. With the details. Well, we'll, we'll, we need to come back to Bart, but, yeah. but, but d just, just to bring that together, is it your view that the stories from the Gospels and the way that what we have there coheres with this more reliable sort of form of memory because it was significant events quickly that started to be rehearsed and told again and again and so it's it stuck in that sense in yeah i mean these events 
were told because the people who experienced them found them very significant for mm. themselves. They're, they're mm. personally important events for the people telling them, and of course they went on telling them. If, if Mark really is Peter's memoirs, Peter went on telling these stories for, mm. for, for decades. And Mark wouldn't be the first person Peter had told that story to, no, of course not. in that no, sense. No, he was constantly telling people all the time. You know, that, that was, in a way was his job, that's what he did. Yeah. He, went, he went around telling these stories, that was what preaching I mean, the gospel it's, was. It's notable in, in Paul that you get in the letters and acts and so on the same story told several times about his own conversion obviously yes. probably an, an example of what you're talking about there this fact that there was a story and he told it numerous times in different places it, indeed people. i mean the story of paul's conversion in acts we have luke's account and then luke has paul telling it himself mm. twice mm. and all three versions differ in detail right and luke's not a careless author he knows what he's doing and he knows that um, stories vary in the detail but remain constant in the gist and he remarkably reproduces that in his three accounts um okay so so uh, but what do you make of richard's contention that yes I, he absolutely agrees there are all kinds of ways in which eyewitness testimony goes wrong is debatable and so on but if we're looking at the gospels what we've got is the best kind sort of in, in our example where where we, we we've got good grounds to trust that they were getting the gist of this right that they would have had good reason to be telling it uh, again and again to, to that kind of solidified these these things so you wouldn't expect to see a lot of change over time in that sense because these were these were things that 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 were set down early on in in the minds of the the eyewitnesses and so on yeah so i i you know i i, I think one needs to look at what experts on memory have actually said about these things instead of um, sort of coming up with commonsensical ideas about them. Um, because the psychological research is, is extensive uh, dealing, with, um, dealing with eyewitness testimony, and it's not simply courtroom uh, material. Although courtroom material is important, and I don't think it should be bypassed the way that Richard does, because a lot of courtroom testimony is precisely people testifying about things that have happened to them that were very significant, that uh, are very important to their lives. And what, uh, that, what that research has shown time and again is that the people who have experienced these things and who testify about them in court often misremember them. Uh, not simply misremember a detail here and there, what color was the car, but actually misremember major aspects of, of what they themselves experienced. Um, the psychological research on this is extensive, and I, uh, I, I think that, that people, if they, if they have any doubts about this, they should simply read the research. I spent two years doing nothing but reading this research, and it's astounding because it's quite different from what you might think. You might think that if something really significant happened to you, that you would remember it clearly. And in fact, we do have clear memories. I mean, you vividly remember your your, the day of your marriage. But the problem is that psychologists have shown conclusively in t study after study that people misremember things that are of central importance to them. And part of the problem is precisely this thing about them telling the stories over and over again. Once you tell a story, the way you tell the story affects how you remember it the next time. And so if you change something inadvertently the first time, that's how you then begin to remember it. Uh, and you eventually, over time, you start remembering things that didn't happen. And, of course, you forget things that did happen. 
And so, I mean, there have been all sorts of interesting experiments about this. That some some of them are rather humorous. I mean, they're all very serious. But uh, the, one of my favorite exper- experiments uh, is entitled by the authors, uh, "Do you remember proposing marriage to the Pepsi machine?" And so, what these authors did, this was a, this was, these were college psychologists who had a class, and they took members of the class around to different parts on campus, and they, they asked the student, uh, a student one-on-one, they'd ask him to, to do a perfectly normal act, or think about doing this perfectly normal act, or they would ask them to uh, do a highly bizarre act, or remember doing a highly bizarre act. And so, like, they'd go to the library and they'd go to the dictionary and they'd say, uh, you know, look up a word in the dictionary. Uh, or they'd say, think about looking up a word in the dictionary for 10 seconds. Or they'd say, pat the dictionary and ask if it's having a good day. Or think about patting the dictionary and asking mm, it. And, mm. Or you'd go to the Pepsi machine and you'd look for change in the coin slot, or you'd bow down and uh, ask the Pepsi machine to marry you. <laughs> or you'd think about doing that. Yes. So, so they go through this, these experiments with all of these students, and it turns out that two weeks later when they interview the students, if they ask students, do you remember doing this? You know, do you remember going down on one mm, knee and mm. proposing marriage to the Pepsi machine? If the student had simply imagined doing it, two weeks later they remember actually doing it. Hmm. Uh, and so if there are bizarre things that happen to you in your life uh, that you, uh, you, know, you might remember them, you might misremember them, and you might remember things that didn't happen to you that you simply thought happened to you. Mm. Uh, so this has been shown time and time again, and it applies not only to modern college students, it applies to people of all time, that we often remember things that in fact did not happen. So where, where, where does this leave us then in terms of your, your views, Richard, on the reliability well, uh, okay, of the, can, the testimony? Can I just say, in case Bart's comments give the wrong impression, I mean, my chapter on the psychology of eyewitness memory in the book was based on dozens of books and articles from the psychological research. You find them all in the footnotes. Yes. This and wasn't a common sense idea, simply. No, this, was, uh, uh, this was based uh, uh, on uh, serious absolutely, research. Absolutely not. I say about that, Richard, that, I mean, you know, I, I, I've read hundreds of books and articles on this, and I think, you know, if you are doing another edition, I would like to see more substantiation for your views, because... Uh, you, you, you know, you cite some sources, but not very many, and uh, a lot of your results are based on what, what two different articles by the same author said. And so I would, I would like to see more substantial documentation for your views about the psychology of eyewitnesses. Well, I've done a lot more work since updating my views. I mean, I've got a forthcoming article in the Journal of the Study of the Historical Jesus responding to um, Dale Allison's work, which you know he's, he's also very sceptical about the reliability of memory. Um, but can, can I say another thing? You see, uh, I mean, the, I think the problem here is is sort of generalising about memory. And, and actually, Daniel Schachter, you know, great expert on this, he says, you know, the point is really not whether memory tends to be good or bad. The point is what sort of memories do we remember well and in what conditions do we remember them well? And those are the issues that we've really got to um, focus on in order to be precise and useful about this subject. Give us some examples. I mean, for what, what, take 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 us into the Gospels, Richard. What what persuades you say if you were to pick out a few stories from Mark that these aren't necessarily sort of uh, vaguely remembered 
at a distance from the events sort of stories that have kind of uh, many things have been added to and other bits forgotten of um in the process you know um why 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 are you happy that mark isn't kind of just piecing together a sort of a, a, a conglomerate of vaguely remembered sort of stories around jesus which which probably are very different to the actual events that happened well, well of course it's, it's, it's very difficult to actually distinguish whether an account mm. comes from memory or, or not because mm. a, a good writer of fiction can write very credible accounts i mean i, I don't think one can do that i'm not trying to do that mm. um all that i'm trying to do is is to say well suppose other evidence other arguments suppose i'm right that eyewitness sources are close to the text of the Gospels, mm. can we rely on them? Mm. Um, because people, of course, have said, like, like Bart has said, that, you know, even if you prove that these come from eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses get things wrong. And, of course, it's probably true. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not claiming eyewitnesses are infallible, not in the mm. least. I mean, I'm sure there are mistakes there. Um, people make mistakes. There are errors of retrieval, um, a, a, as they're called. And, you, you know, I mean, the, the, the process of retrieving a memory is, is, is really very important, and Bart explains it. You know, you, you actually... What the brain does is to pull together a whole lot of components mm. of the memory of an event, puts them together, it constructs that memory out of bits and pieces, and sometimes it fills in the gaps and fills in the gaps wrongly, and, and, you, can, and you can get bits of one event intruding into another event. I mean, the, these things happen, there's good evidence of that. Mm. Um, but they, they do tend to be uh, errors of retrieval, errors of detail, Usually. I mean, the, the classic area that, and one which Bart frequently brings up in his discussions and debates is the resurrection stories, mm -hmm. um, which obviously we've got accounts of in all four Gospels mm -hmm. and differences between them mm -hmm. in all four Gospels. And, and I know Bart has often said, you know, well, this just shows how badly people remember the events because in this story we've got this many women and another story another number of women and people coming and going at different times and different things apparently happening at the tomb you've got angels in one account and not in another and 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 so on and so forth um so so is it so so do those count against you richard for bart in this instance or or, or do you think actually there's something about the the shared aspects of these four accounts that that say that there is a kind of you know the gist is there as as you said uh, of, of the of the memory that that is obviously being developed here yeah i mean if the four accounts of the women at the tomb um as it were come from different women um i think it makes perfectly good sense there there is a a gist of an event that mm. they they've all remembered and the details vary um i think that that would be quite consistent with eyewitness memory if that's how it happened i mean of course you you can argue whether Matthew is just adapting Mark's account, is, is, does he have a different eyewitness source, and, mm. and so forth. But it's, it's very interesting when you look, and, and I, th I think ancient writers, because they were basically storytellers, they were always telling stories, they observed people telling stories, they actually knew about this business of the gist and the detail. So if you look, for example, it's a very good example, I think, because we've got four versions of Peter's three denials of Jesus, and you put them side by side, um, and you can see both that the gist is very strong mm -hmm. and consistent that Peter does deny Jesus three times. Um, the details of each denial, who asked the question, exactly what is the question, mm. exactly, th those vary across the four mm. Gospels. And I think that certainly Matthew and Luke are adapting Mark's version, mm -hmm. but they don't mind varying the details because they know that happens in memory and in storytelling. Mm. Right. Um, but the gist remains constant. 
Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll go to a quick break and come back to you, Bart, um, as we continue this discussion on whether we can trust the uh, the eyewitness testimony that uh, Richard Borkin believes is in the Gospels. Well, um, Bart M and our other guest today disputes whether we have eyewitness testimony. But if we do, he says there's all kinds of reasons from modern psychology to doubt whether people would adequately remember events that they've been witness to. So we're going to continue uh, discussing this in the next section of today's programme. If you want to find out more about my guest, you want to get in touch then do go to the website premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable you can find previous programs that both richard and bart have uh, have been involved with you can download the podcast find more uh, features and uh, of course information about the forthcoming unbelievable the conference in july uh, but we'll continue this discussion again in a moment's time before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast i've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this easter As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second uh, part of today's programme. And it's actually uh, a second show uh, with my two guests who are joining me today. Um, it's been great to be joined uh, this week and last week by Bart Ehrman and uh, Richard Borkham here on Unbelievable. I'm Justin Briley, and this is the show that brings Christians and non-Christians together for serious dialogue and debate. And it's always fun when you get two uh, really top-notch scholars in a discussion like the ones we've been having in the last two weeks. Uh, we've been talking about Bart Ehrman's new book, Jesus Before the Gospels, how the earliest Christians remembered change and invented their stories of the saviour so do the gospels portray an accurate reflection of the historical jesus or can we trust the eyewitness testimony was there eyewitness testimony these are the kinds of issues we've been debating on the program so far just a reminder that if you want to get in touch with the program you can email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk always enjoy reading your emails towards the end of each edition of the program you can also find us online premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable you can leave your comments under the latest show you can share that on with others Uh, you can download the podcast read articles features videos and of course find out information about this year's unbelievable conference so uh, lots of ways to to interact with the program we're continuing to talk about this issue of eyewitness testimony and so on and we've been circling the issue of uh, a memory and that kind of thing Bart, and whether it's reliable generally Um, one thing i've sometimes heard is that it's more likely that people in jesus day would have had a better memory a better ability to retain facts and and memories because we're so used to not having to do that today uh we have books we have um 
computers we have our iphone to remind us we have our diary and so on that all of that technology obviously not available to people who were much more reliant on accurately passing on things to each other there would have been far more of a tradition in that day and age of of being told something and remembering it well and so on um do you do you set any store in that would that give us any more um reason to be confident in in the way that stories were transmitted and the way things were remembered right so uh i've got let, let me respond to that in two ways um first is um you know before we had uh computers and our uh and our iphones and uh various things people of course were testing memory um and um in the early in the early 20th century they were testing memory uh on the basis of of how things were heard and repeated uh the, the pioneer in this was actually a british uh psychologist named fc bartlett who uh studied how uh how memories uh, who that are repeated time after time after time how well they are uh, how well they're they're kept consistent and his findings and he wrote a very famous book called remembering where he showed conclusively uh, this is a quote from him that accuracy of reproduction is the rare exception and not the rule uh, and he, he showed this conclusively. And anybody can read the book and see that, in fact, that this is the case, that as things get told time and time again, they change repeatedly. So the question is, was that true in the ancient world? Uh, when they had an oral culture where they didn't, when most people couldn't read. Um, what, we all, what we all learned in graduate school um, back in the 70s and 80s is, is pretty much what you were saying, is that in oral cultures, uh, that people must remember things better because they don't have anything to check. Uh, and so they, they, they must have better memories, and they must work to make sure that their traditions don't change. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much what I thought for years uh, until I started reading the scholarship. Uh, it turns out there are cultural anthropologists who have gone into oral cultures where, there, where things are mainly done uh, in oral form rather than in writing and have, have checked to see how do they preserve their traditions. Um, this, this research was started in the 1920s by, um, by uh, a scholar at Harvard named Milman Perry. Uh, it was picked up by his student, Albert Lord, and then it was taken up by cultural anthropologists, people like uh, Jack Goody and Jan Van Sina. Uh, and they published study after study of this phenomenon of, of passing on of stories and traditions in oral cultures. And what they show conclusively is that, in fact, People in oral cultures don't have better memories than the rest of us. And every time somebody tells a story in an oral culture, the expectation is not that the story will remain the same in the way that we think of, where you don't, you don't change the story. Uh, in fact, the ex expectation is that you will change the story every time you tell it, depending on your situation, who the audience is, how much time you have, what you want to get across what the audience's expectations are. Uh, that every telling of a story, in fact, is a recreation of the story. Um, this has found, been found cross-culturally. It isn't just in one culture. It's not just in one time. It's been consistently uh, demonstrated time and again. And so if, if, uh, if the New Testament uh, writings, the Gospels, were being circulated by word of mouth year after year by storytellers who were telling these stories about Jesus, then uh, if, if, if evidence matters, then it appears that the evidence suggests that these stories were being changed repeatedly every time they were told. 
Okay. Um, Richard, what do you make? Do, do you think that um, people in Jesus' day would have been better at remembering and retelling stories? Uh, I, I don't think people had better memories. Um, I think differences of culture are more about what things people bother to remember, you mm. know, and, and we don't bother to remember things that we can easily look up. Mm. Whereas maybe only a couple of generations ago, people remembered a lot of things that we don't bother with because we can Google them or whatever. It's true so, of many Christians in terms of whether they can remember the Bible. I just think that mm. tradition of committing scripture to memory mm. Is, mm. is fading away because we can get it at a tap of our iPhone. Yes, and I, I mean, I think when I was at school, education, actually, there was a, there was a good deal. I mean, not, if you go back to the Victorians, a huge amount of learning by rote. Mm. Less of it when I was at school, very little of it now. Mm. And the, these things vary. I think this is important with regard to the ancient world because um, education in the ancient world always involved a lot of memorising. It's what, what you did. You memorised all kinds of things, you know, poems by Homer. Or you, the most basic education, you were... You were uh, learning things mm. even even jesus disciples in palestine the, the, the minimal education that they would probably have got in the home if they were say fishermen would have consisted in memorizing a few things you know some jewish prayers a few psalms and uh, the ten commandments mm. you know basic things they would have memorized and that's what you did if you learned something you memorized it now um th i think the thing about memorization is is a question of memorization as i use it means deliberately committing something to memory mm. it doesn't necessarily mean remembering word for word right it means deliberately committing to memory and that i think is what the disciples would have done with jesus teaching um because it's what everybody would do with the teacher mm. um i mean bart discusses the use of rabbinic evidence for this and he's quite right it's it's much too late and, and not strictly relevant um but this is something that was simply part of how you did things in the ancient world. If you wanted, if you're a disciple of a teacher, you learn, you commit their teaching to memory. Now, that, of course, correlates with the fact, um, as many people have observed, Jesus' teaching is typically formed in memorable form. Mm. You know, there are these little aphoristic sayings, uh, you know, the, the one who wants to save his life will lose it and the mm. one who loses his life will save it you know they're, they're cast in memorable form and the parables are all kind of fairly simple but very memorable stories mm. now, i don't believe people memorize the parables word for word but they committed the story to memory um so i i think uh, we must get away from saying that memorization means um word for word I mean, right. we can, if you compare the different accounts in the Gospels, you can see that word for word isn't very often. It is the case, of course, in some of these very, very, very short sayings. Many mm. are called, but few mm. are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. You know, it just it, you, you can easily remember the actual words, um, but very often the wording varies. Um, and uh, but the key is that you um, you know it has been committed to memory. And and does this go against what Bart was saying of of his view that research seems to show that in oral cultures yeah. that there would almost be an intentional change of stories very yes. often depending yes. on the context who you yes. are talking to. Yes, I mean Jan van Sina, who, whom Bart um, relies on as one of his authorities on oral tradition. I mean van Sina actually says that in many cultures there are two sorts of tradition, two sorts of stories about the past. There are those that are, as it were, meant to be entertaining, and those are the ones where the whole point lies in putting some new Skin twist on it, on it. Mm. Yeah, each time you tell it. And there are those that are regarded historical accounts. I mean, Vancini calls them the difference between tales and accounts. Right. And accounts are ones that you try to preserve faithfully. 
Again, it doesn't mean word for word, but you try to observe it faithfully. And think about oral cultures is if they want to preserve something faithfully, they come up with various means of doing it. Um, an obvious one, which many oral cultures do, is to entrust certain people, specialists, with the task of preserving uh, these traditions. And it's their job to get it right. Um, it doesn't mean they do it infallibly. Of course, they make mistakes and things mm. change. But there is a difference in attitude between the ones that they want to preserve faithfully and, and those that are um, endlessly variable and, uh, and supposed to be. Right. Um, and so I think, uh, and these things vary from culture to culture. I think it's very, very difficult, actually, to make huge generalizations. Whether you care about historical accounts or not depends on your culture, what sort of things you're interested in in your culture. If you're an oral culture, you may care about historical accounts. You may not, uh, but you may do, and you may uh, have a distinction between yeah. tales and accounts. Do, uh, what, what do you want to respond to in that, Bart? Um, we could talk about the memorization of Jesus' sayings and teachings. Uh, we could talk about um, whether, whether the, this distinction between tales and accounts that were more faithfully uh, uh, recorded and remembered and so on. Where do you want to go? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there are a yeah, hundred directions we could go here. <laughs> I, I mean, one thing I want to say is that I, I, I don't want to give the wrong impression that I don't think that... I, it's not that I think that there is nothing historical in the Gospels. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, there are certainly just memories of what Jesus said and did that are historically accurate, as I, as I try to show uh, in my book. And so, yes, I think that uh, people did remember that Jesus uh, taught about the coming kingdom of God, and that he told parables to do so, and that a number of these parables had to do with the sowing of seeds. Uh, so, yes, I, I think that we can say that Jesus uh, said, said such things. But did do the Gospels give us the words that Jesus spoke or not? So let me just give one example, the, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is probably the most famous uh, collection of Jesus' teachings, uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's three chapters long. Um, Jesus uh, is said to have gone up on a mountain and to have, and to have taught his disciples these, uh, th th these things found in these three chapters. Now, Matthew was written around the year 80 or 85, probably. That's usually when people date it, uh, which means it was 50 to 55 years after Jesus' life. And so my question is, how does somebody 50 to 55 years later remember what it is that Jesus said on that occasion? So um, um, I'm not sure what would be comparable in, in your uh, British context. In the American context, every year the president, uh, President Obama, gives a State of the Union address mm. where he, 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 he talks for about an hour uh, about, uh, about how the country's doing. Um, and so uh, I ask my students, you know, so we had the State of the Union address two months ago. I'd like you to reproduce it for me. Well, of course they can't reproduce it for mm, me. Mm. So you say, well, but they weren't really, you know, trying to memorize it. Or, well, suppose they were trying to memorize it. Uh, as Richard said, memories were no better in the ancient world than they are today. So, um, so suppose, um, suppose Obama uh, or Cameron or anyone else gives a speech for an hour, and you try to remember it. And then, um, say, a week later you try to reproduce it. What are the chances that you're going to reproduce it correctly? And now suppose you don't wait a week, suppose you wait 50 years and you reproduce it. Even if you were there, 
What are your chances of getting it anywhere near right? And what if you haven't, in fact, heard the speech? What if you heard about the speech from somebody who heard it 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 from somebody, and then you try to write it down 50 years later? What are the chances that you're going to get it right? Uh, I'd say the chances are extremely remote. Mm. Well, let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount, Richard. How, how do you approach that? Because um, I've, I've heard different people say different things about what exactly this represents in terms of is it a sort of a, a useful collection of Jesus's teachings and these things that would have been committed to memory in a sort of, you know, systematic way by his followers. I, I don't know what your take on it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a compilation of sayings of Jesus made by the evangelist. I mean, I don't think I've ever thought Jesus stood up and said the Sermon on the Mount like that. Actually, I was once present where somebody, as it were, performed the Sermon on the Mount. And it's very interesting because you find it just doesn't work if you try and perform it. It's far too concentrated. You know, it's all these little sayings which, which mean a lot and they come thick and fast. One after the yeah. other you can't follow in it. In that sense it's, it's one of the worst sermons ever <laughs> preached because yes. it's, it, it doesn't have a, a beginning, middle uh, and end uh, in the uh, way. And you see, what was remembered of the sayings of Jesus were these short sayings, um, you know, a long parable like the parable of the um, Good Samaritan. Mm. You know, those long parables are about the most that people would remember. Yeah. What people remembered were these, I think what Jesus deliberately did was to mm. encapsulate his teaching in these pithy sayings and parables. And he didn't fill an hour with one after another of them. They're, they're, the, they're the kind of bits that you're supposed to take away, mm. the, the way of mm. remembering it. Mm. So I don't think we have in the Gospels anything like a reproduction of an hour's sermon by Jesus. We have these um, pithy encapsulations of his teaching, which people deliberately committed to memory. And, uh, yeah, and so in that sense, that was where the memorization took place, that they weren't attempting to, you know, it wasn't like someone set a tape recorder going and just reproduced everything that Jesus said in, in that sense. Uh, I mean, but, so, so it sounds like you're somewhat in agreement with, with Richard on this point. Well, but, you know, but it, I mean, I'm glad to hear, I mean, Richard's saying that, the, that Jesus did not deliver the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm, I'm glad to hear him say that, because that's, that's what I think, and so uh, we're agreed on that. Well, can, I but but I suppose of, the question is, did, did he say the things that are nevertheless recorded in well, the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he might have said some, I think he probably did say some of them, yes, and I think you have to go case by case to do an, do an analysis, which is what people like Richard and I do. We go through each line to see is this plausibly something that Jesus said, but I think that the problem is that, that many New Testament scholars have such kind of narrow vision. Um, and so they ask, you know, is Matthew 6.33 something Jesus said? Well, that's fine. You do need to ask that. But what about Thomas 1.14? It's clear Christians are making up stories about Jesus, and they're making up sayings of Jesus. Nobody doubts that. I mean, Richard certainly doesn't doubt that. Tom, Gospel of Thomas 1.14 has a very pithy saying of Jesus. Every woman who makes herself a male shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, is that something that Jesus really said? Probably not. It's a pithy saying. It's in an early source. Uh, did, did somebody memorize Jesus saying that? Well, no, probably not. Probably somebody made up that saying. And so the, que the question's not whether Christians were making up sayings of Jesus or making up sermons of Jesus. They certainly were making up both sayings and sermons. The question is, how do you know in a particular case that this is something Jesus really said or not? Richard? Well, I actually think, you know, the attempt to take an individual saying like that 
which is what scholars have been trying to do, you know, since form criticism, because form criticism gave us the situation where all we can do is assess each saying individually because, you know, they're sort of independent traditions. Um, and I don't think you can do it. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with um, Bart about that saying in Thomas, but, but why do we think that? Because it appears to be say, Jesus saying something very different from anything in, in, in earlier um, records of Jesus' sayings, I suppose. I mean, there are other sayings in Thomas which are not in our Gospels, which you know, are quite sort of coherent with what we have in our Gospels, and maybe Jesus did say them. But how on earth do we tell? Mm. You know, it's extremely difficult to assess a single saying. Um, and can, that, I, can I just respond to yeah, that? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, just a, 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 two points about it. One is that uh, I thought, Richard, I thought you were bringing up the point of individual sayings because I said that Jesus couldn't have delivered the Sermon on the Mount the way it's given, and you said that it's the individual sayings that he said. Yes. And so my question is, which are the individual sayings that he said? And, and now you're saying you can't decide that. So if he didn't deliver the Sermon on the Mount and you can't decide on the individual sayings, I don't, I don't really know what you're left with. No, no. Uh, w- what I think is that what we can do as historians is make general judgments about the reliability of a source. Um, and we may decide that Matthew's a pretty good source um, of, uh, you know, of, of remembering the teaching of Jesus. And we just have to go with that. We, we, can't, we can't say, well, you know, most of the time he's, he's, he's okay, but this particular one really doesn't look authentic. I mean, I don't think we... we well, cause that, I, that's really kind of the point, is that yeah. in, in your book, what you argue is that the eyewitness were guarantors of the tradition. Yes. And so uh, it sounds like you, what you want to argue is that they guarantee that the tradition is accurate. But now you're saying that the Sermon on the Mount is not something that Jesus delivered and that we can't decide on individual sayings. And so I don't see in what sense these eyewitness reports are guarantors of the tradition. Well, I, I, I never meant to say that they guaranteed that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. It never occurred to me that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, actually. I, mean, I think it's very obviously uh, a device of the writer of the Gospel to collect Jesus Jesus teaching um, and to make a useful collection of stuff just as you know Mark has a whole series of Jesus miracles they didn't necessarily happen you know one after the other on that day he's just collected them um, in order to present them um, to his readers so um, the, the way in which the material is selected and compiled in that sort of way is not something the eyewitnesses um, have, have very much to do with. Um, yeah, no, I would agree, completely agree yeah. with that, but mm. I do want to point out that, that the form critics that, you, that you've been disparaging are the ones who came up with this idea that the gospel writers were collecting stories that were in independent circulation. Uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily... You know, I don't agree with the form critics on lots and lots of things, and I don't sort of tie my horse to that wagon, mm. but, but uh, that was something they said that I think is probably right, that the gospel writers have heard a bunch of stories of Jesus and they're collecting them together in their gospels and they're providing the frameworks for these things themselves. Yes, I, I mean, to a lot, I, I don't think that's entirely true, but I, I go quite a long way with that. Um, but my, my, I think that's what you just said. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are you know, I think there are traces, for example, in Mark's Gospel of a sort of an outline of Jesus' ministry um, which, which, which may have been a traditional uh, kind of outline, and Mark is using that outline. But I mean, I don't, I don't imagine Peter could have remembered in which order these particular healing miracles of Jesus happened. Um, that wasn't something that the eyewitnesses would have remembered, or 
it wasn't it wasn't of any importance. Um, they did. No, I agree. They wouldn't have remembered that, which is means that that it, somebody else has put these stories together. Oh, yeah. That they're they're not the way that they really happened. Yeah, but, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't think readers of, of ancient biographies... I mean, take, for example, Lucian's biography of Demonax. A lot of it consists of short little stories, like the pronouncement stories in the Gospel. You know, Demonax was approached by somebody and asked by them, and this is what he said. Um, I don't think anybody reading Lucian's Life of Demonax would imagine he's put these in the right chronological order. He's just collected them. Um, and that's exactly, what that's exactly right. So, so the idea that the eyewitnesses have guaranteed the accuracy of these traditions is not right. Uh, it's more like Lucian's Demon Acts, or as Alexander of Abidantacus. I mean, these are these are these are biographies that are not historically accurate in any modern sense of the term. Well, uh, I, it, it had never occurred to me that. That, that it matters whether Mark has got these healing miracles in the right order. It does, of course, matter that some of the events that lead up to the death of Jesus happened, you know, at that point, because they form a sequence leading up to his death in the last week. You know, there are some things that have to belong, you know, Jesus' baptism has to go at the beginning. Um, there are some things it matters where they are. There are other things that, that um, you know, once you sit down, and, and no, nobody before Mark, I doubt, um, actually wrote, um, a life of Jesus. Um, it wasn't P- Peter didn't spend a day telling the life of Jesus from beginning to end. He preached these indiv- individual stories and sayings. Mark was faced with the task of putting them together um, to create a connected narrative, and, and that's what he did. And that's that's Mark's contribution. Sorry. Yes, I, I agree with that. Yeah. that. That's what I lay out in my book. I, I explain which parts of these narratives can be accepted as historical and which parts are certainly not historical. And, I mean, it sounds to me like you're agreeing that there are parts that are not historical. Well, it's, I'm not saying parts. I'm just saying that the particular sequence of these I- events is not necessarily historical. I, I mean, it, 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 what it sounds to me like you, the, the difference is is that you're saying, Richard... It's all based on eyewitness testimony, but the way that the author arranges those stories and testimonies, there's a certain degree of latitude that, that they, they give themselves in, in how they arrange their material. Yes, yes. And, and this um, but that doesn't stop it being historical in that sense. Exactly, and, and this, of course, oh, yeah, is, but this is why... difference I'm... between being based on an eyewitness testimony and being historical. Uh, you know, I, I hate to go over the same old ground again, but none of these authors claims to be an eyewitness, and even if they were, what we know about eyewitness testimony is really important, because eyewitnesses are not necessarily accurate, and they're not guarantors of the accuracy of the accounts, the way that Richard paints them in his book. Well, let's just give Richard a chance to respond. We're getting towards the end of this section. You know, I mean, you can see from the way that Matthew and Luke actually feel free to revise the order of events in Mark that they don't regard this sequence of events as a matter of of historical accuracy. The the sequence is is done for other reasons, for pedagogical reasons or artistic reasons. Um, And it's the same with with Lucian's life of of Demonax. I'm not suggesting that the Gospels are any more accurate than Lucian's Life of Demonax. Um, this is a matter of literary convention. Did people actually expect these to be the literal chronological order of events, or did they recognise that these were collections of material? You see, and there are there are conventions. If you're writing a modern biography, you might have a whole series of anecdotes about the author, about the subject, uh, and you don't know what order they happened in, and then you could just ha- have a chapter saying, you know, th- these are some anecdotes which, uh, the, you know, the, the dates at which they occurred. 
um, or, or you could explain that in a footnote. You know, we have different conventions, um, but accuracy depends on uh, what you expect a literary work to tell you, um, not what someone else from a different culture might expect that literary work to tell you. I mean, the, the difference is that what you, you both look at the same issues here, and you don't have much of a disagreement in terms of what you're looking at there, but Bart says at the end of it, so we can't trust these as historically reliable um, sources about Jesus, and you say, no, it, that you're, you're kind of, you've got the wrong sort of, you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing there, Bart. We, we, we're not well, so... That, con- that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying. I mean, I, what I'm saying is that you have to evaluate these things critically. You have to look at the stories to see whether they are likely to be historical or not. And what I'm finding a little confusing about Richard's position is that he's agreeing that, in fact, the gospel writers have taken great liberties in arranging these things, but then he says that you can't examine the things themselves, the individual stories, to see if they're historical. And if you can't, then in what sense are you saying that they're guaranteed by the eyewitness accounts? Well, uh, what I'm saying is actually that um, if we're approaching this material as historians, in, in most cases when historians evaluate their sources, they evaluate the general reliability of a source. They don't expect to be able to take a little bit of what the source tells them and, and adjudicate the veracity or not of that. So it seems to be what we need to do with Mark's Gospel is to think about the criteria by which we can say whether Mark's Gospel is a good and reliable source or not. Um, I just don't think we've got the um, resources to evaluate, you know, source by uh, yes. story by story or saying by saying. We, we're going to well, take I a quick break. I mean, I think we would agree that there are some stories that are almost certainly historical. I mean, Jesus was certainly crucified under the order of Pontius Pilate. That's, that's relatively certain. Did Jesus really walk on the water? Well, that's much less certain. Uh, you might think he really did. I might think he really didn't. But we would agree that it doesn't have the same level of probability as the fact that he got condemned to death by Pontius Pilate. And so we do make these judgments. And, uh, and it's important to know how we make these judgments. Uh, if we do it in relationship to somebody like Lucian of Samosata, the way you were mentioning before, then, then I'm perfectly happy with that. Uh, that. That's pretty much what I do in my book. We're going to take a quick break and we'll, we'll be able to finish off this conversation in a moment's time. We're talking about the, uh, the way that people committed the stories of Jesus and his sayings to memory. And can we trust eyewitness testimony? Uh, what does the psychological research show today? Interesting in, in, interaction today on Unbelievable between Bart Ehrman, who is a, a sceptical when it comes to the historicity and reliability of these stories, and uh, Richard Borkham, who is willing to give them a lot more credence in terms of their eyewitness testimony we find in the Gospels. So we'll come back again for the final part of this two-show debate. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Well, it's been a real marathon over the last two weeks as we've debated the Gospels and whether they portray an accurate reflection of the historical Jesus. Last week, with Bart Ehrman and uh, Richard Borkham, we discussed how the Gospel traditions reached the writers of the Gospels, who those writers were. And uh, today, we've much more centred our conversation around eyewitness testimony and its reliability, psychologically and so on, and um, how they would have memorised these teachings. What do we have when we have the sayings of Jesus recorded in places like the Sermon? on the mountain that kind of thing so it's been an interesting discussion thus far and 
and um, we've we've had a, a lot of interesting interactions between you both gentlemen just to, to say if you want to get hold of it um, I do encourage you to get hold of Jesus Before the Gospels by Bart Ehrman it's available I'm sure from bartehrman.com and uh, all good book outlets and uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses of course is available as well if you want to look for that online it's um, the magnum opus due for a uh, an update as well later this year from Richard Borkham on eyewitness testimony in the Gospels and general reliability of the Gospels so um, uh, do do check those out if you really want the the fully fledged version of what we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks I think in the end my feeling is that a lot of this question of whether we can trust eyewitness testimony of course depends on whether there is eyewitness testimony and and what i get from bart's book is that there's much more of a narrative of stories evolving over time as they change hands and are told and retold and finally end up being written down um whereas in a sense you you don't believe there's nearly as long a sort of sequence of events that led to the writing of these things you you believe that there are good reasons uh, richard to say that mark was written by someone being told these events by the apostle peter and similarly the other gospels have their own eyewitness sources and so there wouldn't have been time for stories to develop change and evolve and so on and and so the the issue of of whether these things did change over time doesn't really crop up so much in 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 your account of the writings yes and i mean i'm not really differing very much as far as the time period is concerned from Bart. I mean, I might put Luca on a couple of decades earlier than he does, but but on the whole, um, you know, we're, we're, both, we're both the span, as it were, from Mark in maybe the mid-60s to John in the 90s, we, we agree about that. Um, but it's simply that um, if we believe um, that, uh, you know, people who witnessed the events were still around in this later period, um, then we don't have to postulate um, that the evangelists were reliant on the traditions as they had passed through many, many, many hands. They could still go to source. Can I just say something else about, <clears throat> about as it were, the accuracy? Because I think that's where we were going um, before the break. Um, I think something that all listeners should do, and I'm sure many of them have, but if people are interested at all in the kind of things we're talking about, they ought to look at a synopsis. Mm. In other words, they simply ought to see um, the, the different accounts in the Gospels laid out side by side where they record the same events or the same sayings. And they would see that there is a significant degree of variation uh, between the various Gospels. One thing that they will notice is that on the whole, the sayings of Jesus vary a good deal less than the narratives. Mm. Um, and so Matthew and Luke using Mark obviously felt a good deal freer to vary the narratives than they did the sayings. They do vary the sayings to some extent. Um, but the variation is much more in the case of the narratives. Um, and so, I mean, Bart in his book gives the example of Matthew and Luke on the raising of Jairus' daughter. And to our eyes, you know, there's a contradiction here because Matthew has um, Jairus. The the daughter's already dead when Jairus comes to ask Jesus to come and heal her. Um, In Mark's account, they only hear that she's died when they get near the house. Um, Now, I don't think Matthew thought he was seriously 
contradicting Mark. What he was basically doing was summarising Mark's story. Mm. And he always does this. He tells it in much shorter space. And this is exactly the kind of change which ancient historians, people like Plutarch, would make to their sources or even sometimes to their own accounts when they repeated them. So these kinds of storytelling variation um, were normal and natural and, and people were quite used to them. They didn't think that that was a, 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 a reflection on the accuracy of the stories. It was what they expected was for the gist to be accurate and the details to vary. And are there examples that you would say where you'd find, again, variations in stories where one gospel writer may be supplementing a story with another person's eyewitness testimony or, or something where it brings out a different element to it and maybe creates a new that, that, scenario that, that, that's perfectly possible of course and uh, i mean it's also possible that sometimes uh, you know the, the, the parallel material actually comes from two different sources you know we can't always be sure um that the parallel material goes back to the same source um uh, so yes sometimes that happens um but I, I think a lot of the time there are just these storytelling variations which were widely accepted and uh, and people didn't think that was being inaccurate. They just thought it was telling the story in a slightly different way. And storytellers of historical events had the freedom to do that. Is that a problem for you, Bart? Does that cast does 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 that make them historically unreliable? The fact that there was you know a freedom to to tell the story in different ways in in this way. Uh, well, it certainly makes them unreliable, but it, I doesn't, it's not a problem for me because I think that is what the storytellers were doing. They were changing their stories as they told them. Um, and so the Gospels are filled with changed stories. I think that's absolutely right. So, but, but I want to disagree on one point that Richard made, that the sayings of Jesus are preserved fairly accurately and intact. Uh, and he says the reason for that is that if you compare them across the Gospels, the, the sayings look very much the same. And I completely disagree with that. Um, for two reasons. One, I mean, it's true, they look very much the same. When you look at story sayings in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they look very much the same, but it's for the reason that Richard himself has just alluded to. Matthew got many of his stories from Mark, and so did Luke. Matthew and Luke also used another source that scholars have called Q. And so why do the sayings in Matthew and Luke, Luke look so much alike? It's because they're actually copying from the same source. So we're agreed on that. Does that show that the sayings were never changed? Well, really? Look at the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, Jesus has long, lengthy discourses that are not at all like you find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Or look at the Gospel of Thomas. It's 114 sayings of Jesus. About half of them are nothing at all like you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is absolutely clear and certain that Christians are changing the sayings of Jesus. Um, the reason it doesn't look that much that way to people who just read the Gospels is because they read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you have all of these, these, um, these parables that are the same, these one-liners that are the same, and the reason they're the same is that they're all copying from the same source. It doesn't mean that people aren't changing the sayings. In the Gospel of John, by the way, Jesus spends most of his time talking about his own identity. It's only in the Gospel of John that you have Jesus say things like, I and the Father are one, or before Abraham was, I am, or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, a lot of, I mean, most, most critical scholars doubt whether Jesus actually said things like that, uh, but if he did or not, they certainly are not at all what the, uh, like the sorts of things that Jesus says in Matthew, Mark, or Luke.
Okay. Um, again, a couple of things I want to pick pick up on there. But but what about yeah the way Bart sees this, where there is similarity between singing sayings of Jesus? It's because they they're both copying Q and that kind of thing. Yes, I mean the only point I was making is that you when you observe Matthew and Luke copying Mark, they clearly exercise much more freedom when they reproduce the stories than when they reproduce the sayings. Mm. That was my point. It's a different way of treating. It does, it does seem that it was more important to Matthew and Luke to preserve the sayings as they found them than it was to preserve the stories as they found right. them. Uh, so you just wanted well, to... It's dis- interesting when you compare Matthew and Luke in Q material because uh, a lot of times they'll tell the same story or the same saying and it'll be changed in rather significant ways. And so it is important to see how they've dealt with Mark uh, and to see that they, they felt complete license to change Mark's stories. My assumption is that the storytellers before Matthew, Mark, and Luke also felt complete license to change the story. Uh, and so this, this is an indication of what's happening at the oral stage of the tradition. Do, do you, do you how, how do you respond to that, Richard? Well, again, this is whether we need to postulate before the Gospels a long process of change and development. And the foreign critics did so because they thought they could tell from the text of the Gospels that it had gone through a long development. Um, I don't think we any longer know that. We can't tell that. The nature of all tradition means we can't tell that. We can't track tradition history the way the, the form critics did. And I think most contemporary scholars agree that we can't do that. So what are we left... Yeah, I completely agree with that. I'm not basing my views at all on form critics. So, so and I, the other thing I want to say to what both of you have been commenting on is that I don't think that it takes 30 or 40 years for stories to change. Stories change overnight. And so uh, you don't need 40 or 50 years, even though that's what we have, but you don't need that for the stories to change. Stories are changing the minute they're told and retold. Okay, but in that case, um, we would have to apply the same sort of scepticism that you're applying to the Gospels to an enormous amount of historical evidence. I mean, all historians rely on the memory of the people who recorded events. Um, And I think, actually... It, it's rather like everyday life. You know, if most of the time we trust what people tell us. Occasionally there's something that makes us think, oh, well, I wonder if that's true. But we couldn't get through life if we didn't actually find um, reports of things normally trustworthy and treat them as such, and normally it works out that way. Historians, on the whole, do the same kind of thing with their, with their historical sources. They treat their sources as normally reliable, unless there are good reasons to doubt it. And of course we're taking a risk. Of course we're taking a risk that, you know, this bit of the evidence somebody got wrong. But we can't avoid taking that risk. We can't just go for the things that look as though they're certain. We're going to have to wind things up, folks. Uh, Bart, do you want to summarise at the end of two shows' worth of debate on the eyewitness testimony and the way we've received the Gospels, where, where you find yourself? You can just read the yeah, summary of your well, book I'll if you like. I'll just make one point, which is that um, I, I think what Richard's, Richard's suggestion was the one that I would suggest as well. If, if people want to know whether there are, say, discrepancies in the Gospels or contradictions or if, there, if people are changing the stories and whether the changes are significant or just minor details here and there, all they have to do is to, to line the Gospels up next to each other and compare them carefully. 
uh, in any story. You can take the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, or the resurrection of Jesus, or the birth of Jesus, and simply compare the stories very carefully, and you will see that people are changing the stories. They're doing that at the written level. Matthew and Luke are changing written accounts. Well, if that's happening at the written level, what's happening at the oral level when people are telling the stories and not looking at written sources to verify what they're saying? Um, this, this is why critical scholars tend to think that the Gospels have, record uh, stories of Jesus that have been repeatedly changed over time, and that there are a number of stories in the Gospels that, in fact, were invented by Christians that are not historically accurate. Okay, thank you so much for being with us, Bart, on the program today. And and as Bart said earlier on, his overall takeaway because of that is that we shouldn't treat the Gospels as historically reliable. Um, why, why do you, in the end, even though you share some of Bart's uh, views of, of, of the way the Gospels are put together and that kind of thing, still still nonetheless <laughs> find that the, the, the eyewitness testimony you do believe is there uh, leaves us with, with something that is ultimately reliable but I, I think again as i said before I, I recommend the same exercise as bart has just recommended i mean look at the evidence everybody can do this easily compare the gospels one with another and what you will see there is it seems to me the degree of accuracy um that was expected in these in these writings um what i don't think is that we need to postulate a, a wide range of um change and variation beyond uh the, the the degree of variation that we have actually in the gospel texts thank you very much both for being on the program today uh, it's been great to have your interactions and um well i've learned a lot in the process and i hope you have too if you've been listening and if you'd like to get in touch about it i would welcome your feedback as well we'll make sure you get the way to do that in a moment's time as we hear some of your feedback to recent editions of the program all that remains for me to say is a great big thank you to both richard and bart who uh, have been on a bit of a marathon here uh, doing this debate and um, probably all going to go for a, a lie down now um, but uh, richard thanks very much for coming in all the very best and perhaps we'll see you when the next edition comes out who knows um, and uh, bart thank you for being on the program again great to have you with me yeah my pleasure Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well, thanks to everyone who's been getting in touch about last week's show, and I'm sure we'll be getting in touch about today's uh, final part of the debate as well. If you want to get in touch, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Look forward to reading your emails. Don't forget you can leave comments underneath the latest edition of the programme at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. I do try and read through those, see what people are saying. The last programme with Barton Richard uh, provoked, uh, the last time I looked, about 160 comments underneath that and many more of of course, on the Facebook page as well uh, from the show. So uh, if you want to avail yourself of that, that's the place to go. You can look us up on Facebook and Twitter as well. Loads of Twitter comments, actually, really appreciating uh, the first part of the dialogue between Richard and Bart. Um, Lots of people excited to have two such eminent scholars together debating this subject. Uh, So lots of uh, appreciation on Twitter for that. Um, And uh, here's one from uh, Jason in Bridgewater, who says uh, that's in uh, Massachusetts, I think, USA. Thanks so much for putting last week's show together i had purchased books from both of these wonderful scholars because of your show and was so excited to see that they would be debating and discussing the topic of the formation of the gospels the show was really fascinating and informative both scholars did a good job representing their views concisely and you did a great job moderating as usual i can't wait till next week's part two with these two guys 
Well, I hope you enjoyed it today, Jason, listening. We'll go to some more of your feedback um, on uh, on that uh, uh, edition of last week's show, um, ahead of you obviously sending in more feedback, I'm sure, for this week's one. Just a quick reminder that uh, if you're into biblical apologetics, uh, the case for the reliability of scripture and that kind of thing, those are the kinds of topics we'll certainly be covering again at this year's Unbelievable Conference. So we'd love to see you there. Gary Habermas uh, is a noted New Testament expert historian. He'll be uh, looking at the evidence for the resurrection, of course, one of his specialities. He'll be with us. Uh, Jeremiah J. Johnston is Professor of Early Christianity at Houston Baptist University and President of the Christian Thinkers Society, who are partnering with us this year for Unbelievable the Conference. And so he'll be also uh, able to fill in some of the interesting aspects of uh, some of these debates as well. Uh, PremierChristianRadio.com slash Unbelievable 2016 if you want to get yourself booked in for this year's conference on Saturday the 2nd of July. Now uh, one thing I, I want to do before we get to more feedback on Bart and Richard from last week is uh, the, the show that we had between Yusuf Ishmael and Jonathan McClatchy. Last week I read out uh, a response email from someone who's not a Trinitarian, um, does believe in uh, God and Christianity but but doesn't hold that Jesus was the Son of God and um, and, and they were saying they didn't feel that the, the aspect of whether in the Book of Acts for instance, we really get a clear proclamation of Jesus' deity was covered. They think that that doesn't happen in the book of Acts. Um, and um, or I had a, a response here from Jonathan himself, um, who wanted to come back on that. He said, he wanted to respond to your listener, David, a biblical Unitarian whose correspondence you read. David makes three central claims, all of which are false. These are, firstly, the lack of preaching of Jesus' deity in the gospel accounts. Secondly, the lack of preaching of Jesus' deity in in the Acts of the Apostles, and thirdly, the lack of affirming Jesus' deity in the Pauline epistles. Well, regarding the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, I did give an example during the show of Jesus identifying himself as the one prophesied by Malachi, who is identified as none other than Yahweh himself, and plenty of other examples could be given. The book of Acts also affirms Christ's deity. For example, it is specifically Jesus to whom Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, as he's being stoned. Peter in Acts 2.21 also alludes to Joel 2.32, in which we read that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. But who does this context in Acts identify as Yahweh? Peter goes on to say in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And he's even more explicit in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. If Joel tells us that all who call on the name of Yahweh will be saved and Peter quotes this and identifies the only name by which we can be saved is that of Jesus Christ how can one escape the conclusion that Peter is identifying Jesus as Yahweh and if one grants the authenticity of first Peter as I'm sure David does as a biblical Unitarian Peter's affirmation of the deity of Christ is further supported there first Peter 3 14 to 15 in which he quotes from Isaiah but instead of saying the Lord of hosts you shall honor as holy he says Christ the Lord you shall honor as holy I'm going to talk about the Paul, uh, the deity of Christ affirmed on numerous occasions. Titus 2.13 is a Granville Sharp construction, identifies Christ as our great God and Savior. 1 Corinthians 8 identifies Christ as the Lord of the Shema and identifies him as the creator of all things. And as for Philippians 2, 5 to 11, there are two different Greek words used for form in this text. One of them is schematai, used in verse 8, often translated as appearance, which refers to an outward visible form. The other is morphe, used in both verses 6 and 7, and often translated in very nature. The point I made in the debate with Yusuf was that the same word is used in both clauses, thus putting Christ's being in the form of God in the same category as his being in the form 
of a bond servant. Thus, the text teaches the deity of Christ. Anyway, uh, sorry this response ended up being longer than I intended. I'm sure we'll meet again in the not-too-distant future. Looking forward to Unbelievable, the conference 2016. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for uh, coming back on on that uh, email. Perhaps David will respond in like manner. Uh, Had other emails here um, from other listeners about that uh, debate between Yusuf and Jonathan, but no time to get to them. I do want to get to some more of your emails about last week's debate, Uh, Bart Ehrman and Richard Borkham doing round one of this debate on Jesus and the eyewitnesses and uh, the Gospels. Uh, Fabian says, really enjoyed it and just started reading Bart Ehrman's new book. While I find the premise of the argument interesting, I wonder to what extent the focus on fallible memory accounting for the development of a mythical Jesus, as Ehrman's telephone game analogy illustrates, is missing the point. I've been a critical care physician for more than a decade and studied for the best of my adult life, yet I can recall precisely and instantly the exact sequence of the 15 steps or so required to resuscitate someone in cardiorespiratory arrest, not because of the countless books, journals, articles or guidelines I've read over the years, but because of what my mentor told me. This one day I first experienced as a new medical resident such a traumatic event. I remember the words because of the intense emotional context in which they were delivered and because I realised that from that day that my patients' lives might depend on them. The oral tradition regarding Christ was similarly transmitted in a profoundly emotional context at a time of intense persecution, which should unquestionably lend credibility to these early oral reports. Thank you, Fabian. Uh, interesting uh, sort of example from your own experience to draw on there as to why you, you don't think um, fallible memory would would, would have be a big factor in, in changing things. Uh, Mike in Toronto says, Ehrman's gospel naming theory is laughable. He says that there are all these anonymous gospels floating around, so in order for the church to establish some of these as authoritative, they fabricated authorship to who? Jesus' chosen apostles? Okay, you have Matthew and John, but Mark and Luke? Who the heck are Mark and Luke? And why even bother with obscure followers? Why not other apostles? There are 12 of them for Pete's sake. And if for some inexplicable reason you don't like the 12, there are more important and well-known disciples than Mark and Luke. Why not Barnabas or Apollos or Joseph of Arimathea? That's what the Gnostics did with their Gospels. Ehrman's logic seems directly tied to selling his books, says Mike. Uh, David says, remember a few shows back when you read out some responses from Christian listeners who were critical of the skeptic who put up speculative theories about Paul's motives and history without evidence. I wonder if those same people are going to write in criticising Borkham for all his speculations. Of course they won't. We know that for these types, the terms Christian and confirmation bias are synonymous. Ehrman was clearly the one dealing with the evidence, and when he called for Borkham to support the claims that he was espousing with evidence, he more often than not couldn't do it. It was clear to me one person was starting with evidence to reach a reasonable conclusion, and the other one was starting with a conclusion and using speculation to prop it up. That Borkham has become a source for so many apologists just highlights the fact that these Christians desire to have their beliefs confirmed regardless of the questionable methodology used to arrive at them. And finally, Ed, as also a sceptic on this front, said, Great show with Bart and Richard last week. It was the talk of the town at the discussion group this week. Ed, Ed Atkinson, who runs the uh, the unbelievable Skeptic and Believers discussion group. Uh, you, you say everyone appreciating it and having their take. Uh, here's my take on Papias, for what it's worth. Papias used the same word, logia, to refer to both Mark's gospel, based on Peter's recollections, and to the document by Bath. 
by Matthew, Bart and Richard agreed that what we have as Matthew's Gospel was not by the disciple Matthew and was not originally written in Hebrew, as Papias thinks. So Papias either does not have Matthew's Gospel in mind when he writes, or he's very ill-informed. Either way, that casts serious doubt. If Papias does not know of Matthew's Gospel as such, despite its use in the Church Fathers, then the Gospel has not yet been attached to Matthew, as Bart suggests. So coming down on Bart's side there on that particular part of that debate. But lots of other interesting uh, emails, and apologies, I haven't time to read them all out i wish i wish i had more time uh, at the end of today's show but i wanted to give space to for the final part of the discussion obviously between richard and bart m and so we'll get to more of your feedback at the same time next week for the moment thank you for listening to this uh, two-part edition of unbelievable looking at jesus the eyewitnesses and the gospel accounts and i hope you can join me at the same time next week let me tell you what's happening then you're unbelievable we're going to be asking whether atheists have got hold of the wrong god rupert short is the author of god is no thing and he'll be debating jeremy roddle dialogue officer for the british humanist association next week hope you can come back for that then coming up next the profile <laughs>